It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. times are tough and there's a lot of fear out there but i also know america will come back strong if we've got the right leadership we can get kids back in school folks back to work back to their lives safely if we do it together so thanks for listening i'm joe biden candidate for president and i approve this message paid for by biden for president All right. Well, everyone, welcome back to the Direct-to-Video Connoisseur. As always, this is Matt here, and I have a very special guest this week, someone who has been on before. Um, I've got Sean Malloy from I Must Break This Podcast, the podcast that is uh, uh, the Dolph, Dolph Lundgren-centered. But, of course, what we're going to be talking about today is going to be something a little different than, uh, than, than, than Dolph's was. But uh, welcome back, Sean. Welcome back on the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, I know that... Uh... When you invited me on and we discussed Don't Kill It, that was a fun conversation. And then uh, you were gracious enough to join my show uh, a few months back, and we discussed The Final Inquiry, which was uh, – uh, the, the film was pretty terrible, but it was still a fun conversation all the same. So, <laughs> Yes, and I have a feeling we're going to be doing the same thing with this episode. Um, but um, one, thing, one thing I wanted to touch on about your podcast that I love is that you know, just like like when I was on, you know, you have um, great conversations about Dolph Lundgren movies, but also I love that you have people on uh, who work in the industry that have worked on Dolph Lundgren films, whether it's co-stars, producers, directors. Uh, it's one of the things that I think is really cool. Kind of gives us a more well-rounded understanding of, of how the film industry works. Yeah, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I yeah, that that's been uh, it's been one of the things. I mean, uh, look, I've always been a huge fan of. Uh, of film in general, but especially of the of the action genre, you know, mainly of these uh, direct-to-video action movies. And so, you know, you you watch a lot of these films, and like for example, the film that we're going to be discussing today, uh, Against the Dark. You know, you watch it, and you know, yeah, I mean, let's be honest, it's not a great film, and uh, I think we're going to be dumping on it quite a bit. But you look at it, and it is okay. It is marketed, and it is sold, and it probably got most of its financing because it is a Steven Seagal movie, but in the end, he is such a small piece 
of the entire puzzle of the entire thing that is that is uh, on display here. And I wouldn't be surprised if you actually for being the the quote unquote lead, even though I put that into question, um, right. you know, he is. He, I, I wouldn't be surprised if actually he was the one who was on set the least. You know what I mean? And so by doing a lot of these interviews and getting to speak with a lot of the the people behind the scenes, you get to realize, okay, even if it is a small little low budget film, um, like for example, this one is, there are still hundreds upon hundreds of people who are working behind the scenes who may not get the credit that I don't think they deserve. I mean, you know, you have the camera operators, you have the people working the lightings, you have the people working, um, doing sound design. And I mean, even the people doing catering and whatnot, you know what I mean? And so it's, it's kind of, it's, it's really interesting because this particular film, yeah, we're going to be, we're going to be talking about its shortcomings and there are quite a few shortcomings, but it's always, especially after, you know, getting to speak with a lot of the people, you kind of think about it and it's like, wow, you know, it's almost in a weird way, it's kind of unfair to dump on this considering that, you know, so many people were working on it, trying to make it look good. And then, uh, you know, in the end, we see what the end result is. Having said that, I, I think it's also fair to say that, look, we got to, we got <laughs> to review a film and we got to call it how it is. And if the film is just not good, you know, it's not good, but, but there's quite a, a few reasons why, um, and I'll, I'll just get to it right now. I think the main reason why this film is not good is because of its main star. But um, yeah, there's tons of people working behind the scenes, and uh, that, that's been um, that I've been very fortunate and been very blessed uh, to to gotten to speak with as many people as I have on the sh- in the show, and and we're still going, which is great. Yeah, and I mean, one of, one of your more recent episodes, you talked to the producer of this film, not about this film. Um, you were talking more about because he, he produced some of Dolph's films, uh, Benjamin Sachs. And, but one of the things that really struck me about what he talked about with the industry, with someone like, like a Seagal being in this movie that we're going to talk about, is that for the studio, the movie is worth a certain amount of money if there's a name involved, whether it's Seagal or Bruce Willis or somebody like that. And it's almost like if, if there isn't that Seagal name there, on the on the, the the tin for the the studio to sell it, they're gonna give the the someone like Benjamin Sachs less money to make the film because it's not worth as much to them. And so like you talked about all of those other people that are involved who need to get paid, you know, as well, and who are putting in a lot more work than Seagal is. It's like uh, what what did he say, Benjamin Sachs? I think he said it's like they work like fourteen hour days to get these films done, uh, in the short period they do. So. You're right about that. It's like, you know, we think of it as a bait and switch, right? We're like, oh, I'm, I'm coming into this movie watching, I want to see Seagal fight vampires. And so we think of it as a bait and switch when, in fact, you know, Seagal is, is paying to keep a lot of people in business just by being in that movie. You know, yeah, it really is. Uh, it really is unfortunate. I mean, it's almost, especially from, you know, from the fans standpoint, um, or, you know, like I said, the people working behind the scenes, putting in those 14 hour days. Yeah. It's really unfortunate because, okay. And, and I, I go back and forth on this, of course, because, you know, let's face it. I don't think I would have seen this film. I don't think it would have been on my radar and I really wouldn't even know about it had it not been for Steven Stahl's involvement. But having said that, it's, it's really telling. And it's really, like I said, unfortunate. I think I'm going to be keep, I'm going to keep going back to that. The fact that I I would I'd be surprised if Seagal spent more than two to three days on set on this film. Yet in the end, he's the one who gets top billing. He's the one whose face is poorly photoshopped onto the DVD <laughs> cover. 
he's the one who is, you know, all over the trailer and everything. His name is above the, uh, uh, the title and everything. And, you know, I mean, it, it's funny too, because watching it, I don't know if you picked up on this either or not, but when you watch it, okay, yeah, it's a Steven Seagal film and we can put that in quotes, but there's really no reason for Seagal's character to be in this film. I mean, you could take out his character out of the entire puzzle of that this movie is. And I almost think the movie would be maybe even a little more coherent, but I have a feeling that, that Seagal was thrown in and I have a great analogy that I was going to throw out here uh, later on, but I have a feeling that the producers and the financiers and everything like that had this script when it was going in production, they pretty much said, Hey, we have Seagal and he is available for about three days. Can we fit him in, in some kind of way? And suddenly the writer and everybody working on the film is like kind of thinking like, oh, shit, I got to let's 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 scramble and let's kind of make do here. <laughs> right. I mean, one of the things that, that Benjamin Sachs talks about when, when he was on your show was how Seagal started coming to him or coming to, you know, his production company saying, I need another movie. And it was almost like a lot of diminishing returns there where the studios were like, you know, there's three Seagal movies in the same year. He's not worth as much now to us. And if you look at his IMDb, you know, around the period of this, you know, kind of, I guess if you go a little bit later than this film, I think like you get into like the, the 2016 area, you know, he's doing like like three or four movies a year. Um, I guess around this time he was actually doing a lot too. And and so it's, it's that's part of it too, right? Is it like, you know, Seagal's like, I, I could use some extra money, so let's get another one of these DTV flicks out there. And it's almost like the studio's like, well, you, we already have two Seagal movies that we're trying to push. You know, we can only fit so much space on, on the red box screen and, and, and whatnot to, um, you know, for Seagal stuff. And, you know, if Dolph's doing five movies and Scott Atkins is doing five movies, it's like suddenly the market just gets filled. Well, and that's that's one to be perfectly honest. That's one of the things that um, well, there, there were a few things. I mean, I was a Seagal fanatic throughout, you know, his golden era throughout the 90s and the early 2000s and everything. And that's one of the things that kind of got me burnt out on the guy was that, yeah, he was putting out what seemed like six movies a year to where suddenly he's competing against himself on the video store, on the, you know, on the video store shelves. And, you know, it's interesting because, okay, if you look at guys like Dolph Lundgren, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Wesley Snipes, they had on average about one movie a year, which I think is, is a pretty good rate because what that does is that keeps the fans happy that keeps the fans satisfied okay if they're their action stars doing one movie a year even if you remember like a uh, stallone and schwarzenegger back when their movies were going to the theaters there was always the new schwarzenegger movie each year or the new stallone movie and maybe they had like a gap year between or so but i think you know one movie a year is pretty par for the course and that's pretty good um i mean if you think about it look at what uh, george lucas did you know with with the Star Wars movies, you know, I think one of the things that he did that, um, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I think one of the things that he did and why Disney is uh, the, the the Star Wars franchise is kind of floundering with them is George Lucas had it right. He had a new Star Wars movie that was released every three years. And what that did is that kept the fans, you know, that kept the fans happy, that kept the fans, you know, wanting more, that kept the anticipation going. And then if you look at what Disney's doing, well, what is Disney doing? They're saturating the market, and they're releasing one, sometimes two, Star Wars, you know, uh, movies, shows, whatever, a year. Well, as a result, you have the fans, even the most diehard fans, they're getting burned out. And they're saying, like, look, you know, 
more necessarily isn't better here. And I think that's exactly what Seagal was doing. He was, I mean, it, there's also, there's also, I think there's just something so humorous about picturing Seagal knocking on uh, Ben Sachs's door and saying, Hey, I need some work. What script do you have for me? You know, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you know, like I said, less or excuse me, more definitely isn't better. And I think that's one of the, I mean, there's quite a few things why Seagal has become the joke that he has, but I think that's definitely the big one is once he hit the direct to video market, suddenly that one movie a year that he was doing, it suddenly became six movies a year and the quality as a result just kept suffering. Yeah, I mean, you make a great point because, you know, when you talk about the Star Wars films, I mean, I think I, I probably maybe I speak for both of us, right, that in the in the 90s, if somebody had said, we're going to make a movie that's kind of like a, um, a Han Solo origin story, you'd be like, this is great. I love the idea of a Han Solo origin story. You know, that's got I, I got to see that movie. But I, did, I never saw Solo when it came out. And I, I heard it, it, it did it flopped in, in, um, in the box office. It didn't do anything of what what Disney was hoping it would do. And it's because there's just, you know, there were too many Star Wars movies coming out at that time. And people were, I think people thought the idea of Rogue One was great. And then by the time, you know, you got another Star Wars movie, somebody had made a joke. And I don't want to cast aspersions with any Cleveland Browns fans out there. But that period where the Browns hadn't been, you know, weren't winning, um, somebody had joked that there were more Star Wars movies that came out in that period of time than the Browns had wins. It was like a a, a two-year period or something like that. There were like three Star Wars movies and one Browns win. But, you know, you're right. And I think it... You know, right now, especially with the streaming market, what it is, too, I think. And I think, too, with the Seagal films, there's a cynical aspect to it where you're like, okay, there's how many of these movies come out? And it's like, you know, this one wasn't directed by Keone Waxman, but a lot of the ones I think that that Benjamin Sachs did, he would have um, Keone Waxman as the director who kind of got what Seagal's limitations were. like. And and when I say Seagal's limitations, I don't mean like what Seagal is capable of doing. I mean what Seagal's willing to do, right? I think that's what we kind of think about is like he's only willing to do so much in a movie and waxman would be able to work around it and get people like really hungry supporting actors like byron mann um bren foster um you know actors like that that could work alongside of of seagal and do a lot of the heavy lifting um you know one that i think of uh, fred olin ray did that sniper special ops with tim abel who carried that movie while seagal we we, we joke that's like a sit-down role um oh, can you hear me uh John? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Okay, same yeah. connection error here, but it looks like oh, I'm disconnected from video. Okay, we're not using video anyway, so all right. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I for me, I, I think that's another thing with with Seagal is that um, on top of the fact that there's a saturation, there's that cynical part too, where I think if you're a fan, you're just like, how many of these movies can I watch where Seagal? First off, Seagal can't lose, right? He gets the girl, but it's always like some kind of awkward thing where he gets the girl, where it's like there's some sort of weird yeah. uh, romance thing. Um, there's And then there's always some other person who's doing the heavy lifting who doesn't get all the, the glory. It's it's Seagal who gets it. And people see that paradigm. You know, it's one thing to see that paradigm once a year, right? And you're kind of just like, oh, here's another Seagal film. They're going to have fun with this. It's another when it's three movies and you're, you're, you're you know, after you see the first one on streaming, you're like, do I want to watch another one? Um, yeah, it's, it's, so it's like there's sort of that second part of it, like, there's the, the fatigue, but then also that cynicism of, like, what Seagal is doing in these movies. Well, I mean, and I'm looking right now at his, at his filmography. And, okay, so when he hit the direct-to-video market, I mean, if you look at uh, 2006 alone, he had four movies coming out, okay? Right. So he had um, 
Black Dawn, Mercenary for Justice, Shadow Man, Attack Force, and then at the beginning of 2007, he did Flight of Fury. And granted, in all these films, I think, uh, you know, I, I, boy, I've only seen one of these films, but I'd, I'd be willing to bet <laughs> that in about a good half of them, he plays some kind of CIA spook operative of some kind of, you know, of some form who kicks ass and who never takes a punch. And I think that's one of the issues with, with Seagal as well. I mean, if you take a look at, uh, at Jean-Claude Van Damme, for that matter, granted, while he did go into the world of a direct-to-video around the, you know, early 2000s and even, even, to, you know, even now, um, while he was still playing the tough guy, he was at least trying new forms of tough guys or new variations of tough guys, you know. I mean, until death, he played like a dirty cop. And then Wake of Death, he played like a um, like a mafia enforcer. You know what I mean? So he was at least kind of varying up and changing his his image. And you know, um, not to plug my own show, but I remember speaking with uh, Steve Latshaw, um, who is a, a screenwriter who writes quite a few of these films, and he said that as well. I mean, if you look at guys like uh, Jeff Speakman and uh, Brian Bosworth and Michael Dudikoff, you know, they were same kind of thing. They're competing against themselves. And if they're going to keep playing the same role and the same character over and over again, well, then suddenly the fans are going to turn on you. And the fans aren't going to want to, you know, show up for the next movie. And that's, to be perfectly honest, Matt, that, that's exactly what happened to me. I mean, I can only watch Hard to Kill uh, so many times or March for, the, March for Death so many times. And then if I'm going to see a direct-to-video copycat of that film where we are we are to ostensibly believe that – this guy who is now 50 pounds heavier and 20 years older is still kicking ass at the same speed that he was earlier. And there's no growth. There's no evolution at all in the character. I'm sorry. In the end, I'm just going to go back. I'd rather go. I'd rather watch hard to kill again for the 25th time. I'd rather watch out for justice again, because at least at that point, because I mean, if you look at the from the uh, early nineties or whatever, I mean, if you look at him and out for justice, you watch it and it's like, he is a bad mofo. Like I watched that and I'm thinking I could believe that that guy, that, that scene where he goes in and he, he wraps the, uh, what is it? The, the, the pool table ball, like in a yes. towel and he just, you know, whips everyone and you watch it and it's like, okay, like I, I would buy that. And then you look at the stuff that he's doing nowadays and it's just this, this big, and look, I don't want to disparage anyone who's overweight, but I mean, come on, it's this, it's this big heavy dude you know, wearing a giant leather coat, kicking a room full of, <laughs> kicking all the asses of like 10 guys. It's like, no, I don't, I don't buy it. Maybe he does still have those martial arts skills, but um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not there with you. I'm, I'm not buying it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, you know, when you mentioned, you know, you mentioned Dolph, you mentioned Van Damme, you know, I, I, um, I just did a, a Gary Daniels film with, uh, with Simon uh, Miller, Explosive Action. And, you know, you think of those three, like, and I'm not, again, I, I, I same thing. I'm not going to cast aspersions on anybody for being overweight. Uh, but it is interesting that you think of those three where they're, like, really trying to show, um, not so much that they still have it, but there's a certain pride that they have as, I guess, as former athletes uh, where, you know, they, they want to, they, they're kind of still hitting the gym quite a bit. And, and they're, they're trying to really show, you know, I mean, I, I've seen like uh, videos of, of Dolph's workouts recently where it's like he just, you know, and, and Van Damme is the same way. And it, it's fascinating that, that, you know, Seagal is the opposite, right? Where it's like 
they, they, you know, he's making them Photoshop everything. And like, you know, he goes to bed fully clothed in his movies um, and all this stuff because, you know, he's like, so he, he's part, he's vain about it, but he's not really, you know, he, he, he's, he's not going to do the work that those guys are going uh, to do, you know, where they have that pride where like, they're just like, yeah, I'm going to keep working at it. Um, but then also it's like, these guys, you, you think maybe they're, they're so vain, like they, they're trying to make themselves look, you know, still, you know, be in, in great shape and everything. But you notice that they do a lot of roles where their characters have aged. And, you know, this is, you know, a, a lot of these redemption kind of things where it's like, you know, I'm, a, you know, I think of the bouncer with Van Damme where he's, you know, he's, he's an older person. He's in his 50s. You know, he's playing someone in his 50s. I don't think Seagal can do that. He can't play that role of someone who's in his 60s, somebody who's, who's vulnerable, someone who, who can be beat, who can lose, who is overcoming odds. He has to be this sort of omnipotent force that, like you said, I mean, Mark for Death, um, you know, uh, Out for I mean, those movies, I, I think Mark for Death was on TV recently. And it's like you watch that stuff and it's just electric. And it's yeah. almost like you know, he's trading on that past and, and to, to keep making money as opposed to, you know, I'm, you know, especially like a Van Damme where he's not trading on that past. He's trying to build more. He's trying to continue to build on what was already there as opposed to being like, Hey, you liked me in Death Warrant, right? You're gonna like me in this. Uh, he's like, no, I'm gonna do something new. I'm gonna add something to my CV as opposed to just having the same thing, which I really appreciate. And you know, the part of my Van Dam doesn't do a movie, you know, as, as frequently as Seagal does because he's trying to pick projects that he likes. And you know, there is some um, issue, you know, like like um, you know, Van Dam's movies tend to be longer, which I don't like. Um, you know, I still don't want to get over 90 minutes for a movie, so um, I appreciate that Seagal gives me a, a quick time period with with his movies. But by the same token, it does feel like Van Damme is trying to explore more things or do more things where, where Seagal is just like, let me just, you know, like you said, make Hard to Kill again or something like that. Well, you, know, you said a lot of things there, actually, that, that I, I agree with and did, that are um, really interesting. I mean, if you take a look, for example, at Clint Eastwood, I mean, I think there, I mean, there, there's a variety of reasons why I think Clint Eastwood is still the powerhouse that he is today in terms of his movies. But I think one of the things that Eastwood has done, and he's made a conscious effort of doing this his entire career, is he chooses roles and he chooses characters that age with him. Okay, so if you look at Clint, if you look at Clint Eastwood and all the roles that he's played, I mean, he is now playing. I mean, look at Gran Torino and look yeah. at The Mule. I mean, he is. I mean, not only are these great movies, but he is aligning himself and he is playing characters that are also 80-year-old men. And I think that is one of the things that um, that you know has made uh, both Eastwood and his films, which which where they can still stand up and they can still you know uh, stand on their own two legs. You know, with regard to Seagal, you know, it's chances are it's it's probably you know <laughs> very obvious that maybe a lot of these roles, the roles that uh, come Clint Eastwood's way, are probably not coming. Seagal's way, you know what I mean, and so he's obviously working with with what he has. But yeah, I mean, it would it's interesting because you think like, dude, if anything, play the mentor. Like you know, you can't right. keep going back to doing what uh, what you were doing. And you know, with regard to you know, March for Death and Out for Justice, I think one of the things uh, why those films also also still stand up and you know are the classics that they are is because if you look at the uh, the martial arts genre or just, you know, action films of that, of that era. I think what Seagal brought to those films was 
a certain level of violence that we had not been seeing in action movies. I mean, if you look at those films, I mean, we had never really seen, at least to my knowledge, we had never really seen an action star breaking people's bones. You know what I mean? Like snapping bones in half and hearing the bones crack and everything. I mean, the the level of violence in those films was um, almost on like kind of like a, I don't want to say a sadistic level, but it was on a level that I don't think we had seen. And so that's what I feel like, you know, there's a wonderful book out there called uh, Sagology that Mm -hmm. uh, analyzes all of uh, Seagal's films. And I think that's one of the things that makes him just such an enigma, the fact that he does have such classic films, and it's almost like he's become a parody of himself where kind of like you said, you know, a lot of these films, I watched one with him um, a few months back called uh, Today You Die. And it's hilarious because the scene, there's a scene at the beginning of the movie where he is in bed with his lovely smoking wife and she's asleep. And it's so awkwardly shot because he's in bed fully clothed. Like, like you said too, I want to talk about that. That's just weird. All his movies, he's always fully (laughs) clothed. (laughs) <laughs> and he's it's a weird scene because he's just sitting up in bed wide awake staring while his wife is asleep it, it's just i mean and it's the it's little things like that you know what i mean it's just bizarre little character touches that that he is doing in in his films nowadays you know going to bed fully clothed or the one thing i wanted to bring up that i noticed is he's always wearing these big black leather coats in his movies i mean and almost these giant leather trench coats. Now, I, I'll be honest with you, with, with you right now, Matt. I have never seen anyone in my life wear a leather trench coat. I've, I've seen plenty of leather coats in my days. I might have even wanted to own one at one time. But I've, <laughs> I've never seen anyone wear a giant leather trench coat. And it's, he, it's weird because he, he chooses you know that he's picking his wardrobe for himself you know that there's not a wardrobe person on set saying hey sakal why don't you wear this you know that he's showing up and he's saying i am wearing this bizarre outfit here to hide this girth that i have accumulated over the past 20 years yeah and 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 it's one of those things right where it's like you talked about like He's in bed with his smoking out wife, fully clothed. Like we just have the leather jacket. Like the only person I knew who had a, a leather trench coat was up in college. My my one of my roommates had a friend um, who would visit, and he was like this big guy with a leather trench coat. Um, not as as overweight as as as, as Seagal was, but same idea, like just a big hulking figure. Um, and so yeah, that, that that's the only person I could think of off the top of my head who had a, had a leather trench coat as well. But um, it's it, you, I think. That adds to the cynicism of it. There's sort of this this thing where this guy is completely vain, who's doing these things that are just I don't know. It's just it's and and and, and then it's like you said, like I think you know one of those a year you can handle for you know for the fun factor. But man, when you get you know however many of these that he's doing, like you said, it 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 has that law of diminishing returns. I think for the audience, where the thing like you said, you know this movie we're going to talk about here. The only reason why we're talking about it is because Seagal was in it. We, we probably wouldn't have, you know, we would have passed it on Tubi or uh, Hoopla or whatever we would stream it on Prime. We would pass it over if we don't see Seagal on the cover holding a sword. We don't think to watch it. And, and that's what gets us in the door. That's what gets us watching it. 
and so you know it's like there, there is that cynicism of like you know it'd be you know it'd be nice if maybe you know the people who did the movie got more more you know more play but the reality is is that if you just put the the actual stars the actual people that were in the movie a lot on the cover um we you know we, we probably would have passed it over and who knows i mean maybe that would be worth i mean i don't know you know we're, we'll talk about the film itself as well and kind of get into it some but it, it's a fascinating thing. It's almost like they talk about with politics, um, and I'm not going to get political on this show, but it, 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 like kind of a general political term, they talk about um, uh, pulling candidates down ballot, right? So like the president or something, you know, there's the presidential election and more people vote for that. And people like, you know, if they want to vote Republican or Democrat, they'll probably vote like the whole party on one ticket. So then like the, the you know, the state representative gets votes that they wouldn't normally have gotten because the top of the ballot's kind of pulling them down ballot, uh, pulling them up from down ballot. It's kind of the same idea, I guess, right? That if, if Bruce Willis or Steven Seagal or whoever is barely in a movie, they're kind of giving the rest of the stars in the film more, more shine, or they're, they're getting them uh, uh, views that they probably wouldn't get, I guess, in that sense. So maybe, maybe that's a positive, I guess, but I guess for fans that are coming into this wanting a certain Seagal and not getting it, there is a bit of a, there's, there's frustration there for sure. Well, he's got to be, I mean, I, you got to think at a certain point, he's got to be in on the joke, right? I mean, he has to know when he's on screen, like you said, going to bed fully clothed, wearing the, the equivalent of what is like a muumuu type shirt, or <laughs> again, these, these gigantic, you know, leather coats that cinch around the waist and everything. You, you have to, he has to be in on the joke and realize that the way he is appearing on screen is not very flattering nor does it look cool and badass you know i mean it kind of reminds me i mean this is <laughs> this is a lame joke I, normally i don't like it when people quote other comedians but um christian finnegan who, who's a great comedian he made a joke one time about the uh, the the overweight the overweight fat guy at the at the uh, swimming pool or at the beach or whatever who is in the pool wearing a t-shirt Okay, right. like he's fooling anybody. Like no one's gonna be able to tell that I'm fat because I'm wearing my T-shirt. And I feel like like Seagal is doing the same thing. You know, when he chooses these ridiculous wardrobes. The other thing that that you mentioned that I think is uh, that is important to note as well. Again, that kind of adds to the to the mysticism and the overall eccentricity that is his personality is the fact that yeah. You'll see videos on Instagram, YouTube, okay, of Jean-Claude Van Damme at the gym pumping iron, okay, staying in shape. Same thing with, uh, with, with my boy Dolph, okay? You'll see these videos of him. Um, Arnold does that. Um, Stallone has posted a ton of videos of him, like, uh, uh, rolling, like, these giant tires and everything like that when he was getting in shape for, uh, for uh, the last Rambo movie. But what's so odd about Seagal is, no. You don't see those videos. I, I think I've seen a couple recent videos with him within the past 10 years where he's doing some kind of like light uh, Aikido <laughs> demonstration or something that's, like that. That's but it's nothing, yeah, but it's nothing really um, where he's in the gym. But what is, oh goodness, what, what is so bizarre about it is when you do see interviews with Seagal, he'll spend his time talking shit about the other action guys. You know what I mean? Like he'll, he'll spend, I mean, there, there's a um, notorious video out there where um, the interview is saying like, tell us about some other tough guys. And he is just, he is just being so rude saying Michael J. White. Mm, no, he's, he's not a tough guy. 
Dolph Lundgren? No, he's not a tough guy. I think when they ask him about, about Van Damme, he even says, can I laugh in your face? Like, it's kind of like, so I, I got to wonder, I guess, I know I'm kind of rambling here. I'm sorry, but I, I got to wonder if, if he is in on the joke and if he at a certain point is going along with it and he's, you know what I mean? Like he's kind of building up his attitude to kind of help sell the fact that he is such a weirdo, I guess, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's as, it's as good a, 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 a theory as Eddie, for sure. I mean, I mean the Michael Jai White one, um, you know, I've, I've heard that, that he doesn't like Michael Jai White for, for whatever reason. And, you know, you, you hear like Van Damme and, and Michael Jai White, they get along really well. They, they you know, and, and, and I think Scott Adkins, you know, he gets along well with, you know, so it's not like Michael Jai White is out there starting fights with everybody. And, or same with Van Damme, you know, it's like, you know, they, they, it seems like Van Damme, you know, gets along. I mean, he, he seems to get along well with uh, Alan Moussi, um, I think is his name, from uh, the Kickboxer movies. And of course, Dolph and Van Damme have worked together multiple times in addition to, to doing the, the Universal Soldier film. I mean, they, they did Blackwater together. Um, and of course, Atkins, I think Atkins talks about Van Damme as being a mentor type figure for him to sort of help him out. And so it, it, it's, it's kind of weird in that sense, too. I mean, I guess there are some people that he gets along with. It seems like Byron Mann is someone that works with Seagal multiple times, which I, I love Byron Mann. I love him in, in a lot of stuff. Um, so it might just be, you know, there's certain people that he just gets along with and maybe, maybe they know, maybe, you know, maybe someone like Byron or Brent Foster or something like that, they just kind of know like what Seagal is going to do. <laughs> and so it's just like, you just kind of, you got to deal with it. You just kind of do what you're going to do in that movie with him. And, you know, you're, you're happy enough to get it, get it, get a role, get, you know, or whatever. But it, it, the, the whole, like, yeah, I, I agree with that. And the thing too, about Seagal that I have heard out there. The big knock on him from like MMA guys, um, you know, guys that, that really have fought competitively, is that Seagal didn't fight competitively. That's sort of the big knock on him, and that's something that didn't, you can't say about Dolph or or Van Dam. Um, you know, they both and, and, and Michael J. White they they fought in competitive karate tournaments. You know, Chuck Norris as well. Um, but I, that's that's what I've heard is kind of the big knock on on Seagal, and that's what. Like the MMA guys talk about, yeah, they would, they would just, they, they, they you know, like Boz Rutten said, you know, it wouldn't be a, wouldn't even be a contest if he fought Seagal, uh, which of course now it's like Seagal's, you know, he's pushing 70 at this point. So you never know, but, but that might be part of it too, is that maybe Seagal, because he didn't fight competitively, maybe he feels a certain inadequacy that he's got to overcompensate for by, you know, talking shit about some of these other guys that are out there trying to, again, just trying to, I mean, maybe the thing with Van Damme, maybe he feels jealous because Van Damme and him came in around at the same time. And Van Damme's like, you know, 10 years younger than him. And maybe he felt like he he felt threatened by, by Van Damme's success. But then they had at the same time. You, you never know. I mean, with someone like Lick Seagal, it does seem like there's a lot of insecurities there. For someone who, you know, has given us so many really great films, you'd think he wouldn't have that. But it seems like he does. Well, I, I've said it before. I was talking about this with a buddy a few weeks ago, actually. I think out there, there is a really cool script that is if it's not being, if it's not already written, I think it, it could be written, but I think there's a really cool script that could be out there um, regarding, uh, regarding Steven Seagal's early days when he, um, you know, when he was a, you know, the first white man to open and run an Aikido dojo in Japan. And I think that is a really cool story right there. And I think that could make for a, a really compelling movie, just, you know, the, the, the dichotomy of that, that entire situation and kind of what he faced his story. The problem with that is, again, no one's a gall. 
you know that he would not sign off on something like that unless he got to play himself. And it's, it's yeah. like, I don't think that's, uh, that's going to happen, but I mean, yeah, I think, you know, I think there was a time where he was legitimately um, respected in the field and maybe he still is now, um, you, you know, by a lot of the hardcore martial artists, but, you know, I, again, I think his, his early days, I mean, I'm not going to go into a lot of the rumors, you know, there's some rumors that, you know, he helped train the CIA and, you know, right. I, I don't know about that, but I know it has been proven, you know, his, his background, his early days, um, opening that, uh, opening that school in Japan. And I think that could be a really, uh, a really cool story. But again, knowing him, you know, that he's not going to sign off on that. I think he's, again, I still laugh at the image. I think, uh, the doll, the big, what is he like six foot four, six foot five. He's at the point now where he's knocking on producers doors and saying, look, I, uh, I need to re I need to renovate my bathroom here. So, uh, what script do you have for me? So. Right. Well, cause he, you know, before we hop into the movie here, going back to his, his, his IMDB bio, um, he has rumored or kind of upcoming project, uh, above the law too. So, he is pushing this. I think he's he's also seeing the the law of diminishing returns happening with his his stuff, and he's seeing that maybe maybe he saw the 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 success Van Dam had with going back and doing the Kickboxer sequels. That he he sees like okay, I need to maybe trade on some of these old franchises because my name isn't enough anymore. Now people people want more than just my name on the tin. They want something that's like. You know, and, and I mean that above the law movie that came out recently. Or not, sorry, not above the law, beyond the law. I'm getting above the law, beyond the, oh, beyond the law. Yeah, uh, beyond yeah. the law has. I know it's like these titles. It's like it's almost like there's like like a Seagal machine. I think people have joked about that that you just you know put in his his movie titles and just kind of spit out a new title for for a new movie of his. Um, oh, there's beyond out the, for justice, out for a kill, out of right, reach. For, yeah. You know. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, Beyond the Law, if you look at the cover, it's got DMX on it. And I think, you know, I mean, that was his last successful theatrical film was the one that he did with, with DMX. And I think people were trying, you know, that that cover was meant to trade on that, that it was, um, you know, let's see if we can get uh, Exit Wounds 2, I guess, is what you what, what people wanted, to, you know, them to think it was. it was. You know, they wanted us to think it was going to be Exit Wounds 2. And, and that was his last big screen um, hit that he had. And then ever since then, I think he did. I think he did one more. I think he did uh, Half Past Dead in the theater, and it didn't do well. And he's been DTV ever since. Um, I, I think he's trying to sort of trade more on that past in a way that he hasn't been doing um, previously. Previously, it was like, yeah, the titles were similar, um, but the idea was just like, this is just supposed to be Seagal. Um, that's what you're getting is, is more Seagal. Uh, now it's like, no, I want people to think these are actual sequels to these other movies that I did in the past. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that how that all works out with him. Well, I think with regard to this particular film, Against the Dark, I mean, I, like I said earlier, I kind of had an analogy with this one. And there's really no reason for Seagal to be in this movie. Um, they, they do give his character a cool name. His, his name is what, Tao or whatever. Yeah, right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, there's really no reason for him to be in the film. You could take the character out. You could take his scenes out. You're still going to have a, uh, a, relatively, a relatively coherent uh, film because he's while he is on the cover and he is top filled and everything like I said earlier I think he was on set for maybe only a couple of days um, he's clearly the one who is the least invested in the entire film and I was thinking about it what, what's interesting about his inclusion and his involvement 
is it's kind of like, okay, let, let's say, Matt, you, you're, you're throwing a party, okay? You're throwing like a huge, like a gathering, okay? And you have the entire menu catered, okay? You're, you're a chef, Matt. I don't know if you're a chef or not, but right. <laughs> let's just pretend that you are. And so you have the entire thing catered. You have all these recipes planned. You have, you know, everything good to go. Okay, you have a theme that is going and everything. I mean, you, the, the checks are being written and everything. And then suddenly, you know, a day before the entire event, you have suddenly one of, the, one of the financiers who's cutting one of your checks comes to you and says, hey, Matt, uh, I want you to include pineapple in everything here. Okay, we, we, have this, we, have this, we have a great deal on pineapple. I want you to include pineapple. Well, then suddenly you're, gonna, you're like kind of going back, well, wait a minute, like, the recipe and like the, the food, like pineapple's not included. Like how, yeah. why would I include that all of a sudden? I'm going to have to redo things or whatever. And they basically tell you, if you still want this, uh, the soiree to happen and everything, you need to include the pineapple because we have a, uh, we have a great deal on it and it's going to go bad by the end of the week. So here you go. And I feel like in this particular scenario, and I can't, I can't prove this, but I have a sneaking suspicion. <laughs> I think the, the financiers and everything, Seagal was the pineapple. They found this script, and they said, we can work Seagal in this thing. We need you to include him to where you had the writer and everyone on set thinking, okay, how do we, how do we work around this now all of a sudden? We got to make this a Seagal movie. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why it becomes the mess that it is. Yeah, because it's, it's an interesting movie, right, in the sense that it, it is your standard like, I don't know if I want to say Die Hard is the right way, but it's your standard kind of like horror like film where it's like we have a group of characters who are stuck in an abandoned building that need to somehow escape from these, you know, in, the, in this case, in this film, they are people who are infected with a virus that makes them vampire-ish. Is that the best way to think of it? Like demon-ish? I'm not sure what the, the best way to think of it is. Yeah, they never call is. them vampires. They right. never say that they're vampires or anything. So you can assume, but they're like a mix between vampires and zombies, I guess, right? I mean, you could you could take out the whole vampire element and um, make them zombies, and the movie's still going to play exactly the same. Yeah, and, and so what they've done, like you said, they've grafted in this idea of Seagal being this hunter who leads a group of hunters to clear out these demon people from places that they're in. And so our characters are sort of trapped in this building, um, trying to escape, trying to get to a special door that they know will be open. At the same time that Van Damme and his, or sorry, Seagal and his people are kind of clearing the area out. It's, it's really fascinating because it's like, it, really what it is, is it's just your standard people trying to get out and escape the, 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 the demons movie with these occasional moments of Seagal wielding a sword and killing the demons in another part of the building. Yeah, it, it's it's wild because every time he's on screen, okay, um, and again, I would be shocked if he was on set for more than just a couple of days. But the right. only time we see him on screen, I mean, he will float out of this picture for 15 minutes on end to where almost you forget that he's even in the movie. But I, to be perfectly honest, I I almost lost track and I almost forgot that he was in it because anytime you see him, it's always the same thing. He is just walking down some corridor. I mean, because the film takes place in this hospital or whatever, right. this abandoned hospital. And, I mean, anytime you see Seagal, he is just, it's the same beat repeated over and over. It's just, you know, him walking down 
this, uh, this hallway of the hospital, okay, leading a group of people. He's really not speaking that much. I think they dubbed most of his lines as well, okay? Him walking down the hallway, um, some vampires pop out. He pulls out his sword. He slices him, and he keeps walking. And what's, what's wild about it is we don't even really know exactly where he's walking to, like what the destination really is. I mean, it's just him walking. And so I can't help but wonder if those few days he was on set, they pretty much just had two different hallways that they maybe decorated a little bit differently to, to fake the viewer into thinking that the film had more scale than it does. And it's pretty much him. Uh, they, they said, okay, so all we need you looking tough here. Walk down this hallway here. Okay. And then they said, okay, I want you to walk down this hallway here. Thank you very much. And I, I would be, I'm, I'm almost convinced of it, Matt. I think they took that footage and they just edited it. They edited it and they recycled it and they, pretty much spliced it again throughout the film because there are various shots like there are close-up shots of Seagal's face in some scenes where you can tell like coherently or whatever narratively it doesn't belong you know what I mean like it, it seems like they just kind of did the editor just you know had a, had a fun little cut and paste job or whatever and spliced his his what few footage scenes they had of him throughout the film it's kind of like what uh Ed Wood did in Plan 9 from Outer Space with uh, the Bela Lugosi footage, right? They took that and they kind of worked it to make it, you know, blend in with the narrative when it really shouldn't be there, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's you know, one of the things I think you, you'd mentioned when we did the, the final inquiry um, episode on your podcast was you talked about these, these like, turnkey sets where it's like, you know, in that case it was like a, kind of like a turnkey biblical set or something like that. Um, or, or turnkey westerns, right, where you just go out to a ranch and everything's yeah. all there. This felt like it had the same vibe, right, that it was a sort of a, a turnkey horror film set, that it's like some abandoned hospital that's been done up for for whatever movie. It looks like they just kind of went in and used all of it the way it was, um, give everybody some black leather outfits, and, and you're good to go. Uh, and so, yeah, you wonder the overhead. I mean, um, you know, Keith David and Lyndon Ashby are in this as um, Keith David's the military guy who's like your kind of your cliche, I'm going to blow up the whole thing guy. And then Lyndon Ashby is your, I guess he's not a military guy, he's a State Department guy, but he's the guy with a heart who's like, no, no, they're in there. You know, we got to let them get out before we blow the whole thing up. And um, they are nowhere near the action that's happening in this film. Um, they have, they, they could be in another movie as well. That's what's, what's so fascinating about this. Um, but you almost get that sense, right? That it's like almost like a turnkey film. Like the script, probably people looked at the script and thought, okay, yeah, we can we, we can do this pretty quick. You know, we, we've got, and, and I don't know. I mean, it, 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 yeah, there's a, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know what with the makeup people, maybe that's what, what, where the most of the budget comes in. But even that, it, it seems like there wasn't anything crazy about them. They didn't have fangs or anything. They just sort of had like blood on their mouths and they had kind of like sunken in eyes. Um, that was the extent of that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, but uh, yeah, I think I think there's a lot here where, like, so it's almost like you using your analogy about you've got to put pineapple in all the meals, but it's it's almost too like um like you're like okay, well I, I'm I'm thinking like man, I've got to put pineapple in everything. I don't want to do it, but wait a second, I've got the whole place already rented out for a really good deal, and I've got everything else on the cheap here. Why not just do it? You know, let's just do it. And and yeah, you know, it's like so. And there there uh, are some people, Matt. There are some people who like pineapple on pizza, 
And to those people, I, I ask, what in the hell is wrong with you? But, you know, that there, there is a market for it. And, yeah, I mean, you, you, said, it, you said it perfectly. You know, when it comes to these uh, direct-to-video low-budget westerns, these, uh, you know, direct-to-video religious films or whatever, you know, you sit back and you think, wow, you know, the, uh, the costume designers and the set people, they really went to work. And it's like, well, you know, maybe they did a little bit, sure, but – yeah, no, I, I think, you know, in the case of Westerns, I think, you know, the uh, the reason why we see so many of those is because they're relatively cheap to produce. You rent a ranch, and what's included with the ranch is like a uh, a whole wardrobe set of uh, uh, costumes that were used on a production maybe a week prior. And I think it's the, the same way with this particular film. I mean, because if you look at the direct-to-video genre, post-apocalyptic movies are huge. Right. And if you think about it, well – you know, why are they so big? Well, because they're cheap to make. Because if you think about it with a post-apocalyptic movie, you don't really need much in terms of sets. Um, <laughs> and what set you do have, you know, it's okay for it to be run down and dilapidated and, you know, um, half-built because it is the post-apocalypse, right? You know, <laughs> same thing with the, uh, with the costumes and whatnot. I mean, and th- there's been a lot of directors who have made their career out of doing, uh, uh, you, you know, out of working out of this particular genre. I mean, if you take a look at Albert Pune, you know, a good handful of his movies are all within the post-apocalyptic uh, genre. And, you know, what the other thing, too, that we have to look at and, you know, almost, almost really just kind of realize is the fact that the market today is different than how it was 20 years ago. You know, 20 years ago, how it worked, um, and, and this came actually from Ben Sachs when I spoke to him, is, okay, you'd make a movie, and the idea is to, you know, obviously get the budget back, but make money on it, actually have yeah. like a profit generated out of it in the end. Nowadays, it's flipped, and it's different, okay? The idea nowadays is to just get the budget back. That's it. Yeah. If you can at least get your money back, you know, then, then it's a success. Okay, and so it's kind of, again, I was talking about this with a buddy. It's, it's the um, gambling equivalent of, okay, Matt, you and I go to Vegas, and we go to a roulette table, and we each throw down 10 bucks on the roulette table, okay? And if we get our 10 bucks back, we walk away from the table, and we go home happy. And I feel like that is the equivalent with these films. Now, granted, I, I, I think if they, they make more than that, then obviously they're not going to be splitting hairs. You know, they're going to be happy with it. But I think it's the exact equivalent of these producers. They sell the film. They get the rights to it and everything like that. They, they generate um, foreign sales and everything. They get their budget back. And then if they can make an extra, you know, two, three bucks on the back end, you know, then uh, they're even happier. Well, you know, that you make a really great point about that because I'm um... – uh, there's a, a director, um, Jay Horton, who um, I, I reviewed a couple of his films. He's an indie director, and he does a lot of do- documentaries now because the overhead on those, of course, is really low, right? He, he already owns the equipment, so it makes it even easier. But he was talking about the difference when you when you put a, vi- a movie on Amazon Prime, the difference between having it being streaming or having it be rental um, for streaming. And he said that like if, when you when you initially put a movie out, right, you want it to be streaming you want to have it available to stream because people are, a lot of people are going to watch it so you get you know however much money for per, per stream um, i think it's like a million minutes that you know it's like a lot you have to get a lot of streaming to, to, to make any kind of money but after a while when the when the buzz dies down 
it's better to just have people rent it because you're you're barely getting any streams at that point because the movie's been out for a little while. So why not just have somebody pay four bucks and you, you end up making a little bit more by doing it that way? Well, now I think about with a film like this or from some of these films, like this one's available on Tubi. Well, you know, if you're kind of in that mindset of, well, we made the budget back, you know, a company like Tubi that's offering however much money per stream, they're probably, that's probably a great model that Tubi has. They collect a whole bunch of these movies that have been out for a long time where the company has made the budget back and they're like, whatever I make is, is fine with me. So Tubi probably doesn't, you know, they, they probably have a really good deal with these companies. I, I never really thought of it like that before, but it makes sense because a lot of Seagal movies are on Tubi. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of Seagal movies, a lot of Dolph movies are, are on there. I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's it, it's really interesting. It's just it's a completely different market than what it was when you and I first uh, started, you know, really watching these films and really enjoying them. Because nowadays they're they're just done on what seems like an assembly line. I mean, there is one particular company out there. Uh, I'll go off on a slight tangent, but it, it does have a point. So go with me. But there is a uh, one production company. Um, named EFO. Have you, have you heard or seen any of the films from EFO? I've heard of them, yeah. So I think they're Emmett, Emmett Furlow, I think is their name or whatever. Um, but I have not seen one film of theirs that, that I liked, that I thought was good. I mean, all of their films just, just stink. I mean, and what's really unfortunate about them is they get really good stars. They get named stars in all of their films. But again, because these films are done on an assembly line, where pretty much, okay, I, I, it's, it's kind of like the old canon way. They, they kind of do it in right. the old canon way of, uh, of selling a film, where they sell it based on the actor, on the poster, okay, they get the money, and then they quickly just spit it out, and it just, you know, doesn't, it, it doesn't look that good. I mean, they did Escape Plan 2 with Stallone. I mean, here you, you have a sequel to Escape Plan with Stallone and Dave Bautista. And it's a joke. It's a mess. It just looks so cheap. They did another one with um, uh, Mel Gibson and then Kate Bosworth called Force of Nature. Okay. Yeah. Same kind of thing. Don't be fooled by the trailer. The trailer looks kind of cool, but then you watch the film and it just, it, it's just, it just seems so cheap and so lazily made. And so, yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's look, it's the way things are going now, but um, you know, it's, it's really unfortunate that that's the way it is. But then again, you know, I mean, look, it's a business. And, you know, if I was in the business, then I'd probably be working, you know, the same way. But I would, I would hope that, okay, if you have these name stars on set, then at least, I don't know, at least try to make it look good. I mean, I would think, I would think they, they, they would, they're at least trying to make it look good, right? Yeah, I mean, this movie definitely felt like it had a lot of trying in it. I mean, I, I can definitely agree with that. Um, but... Yeah, it's it's hard to, you know, it, it, I think it's just, you know, like you said, the whole thing was kind of sautéed in wrong sauce, and we, we kind of end up with, with some issues there. Yeah, well, and what's also, what's, what's also really odd about this particular film is this was the first time that we had really seen Seagal dip into a different genre, dip into like the the horror genre. I mean, if you look at Seagal from the, from the nineties, actually all the way up to the time he did this particular film, his films were all relatively, I don't want to use the term realistic, but they were all relatively grounded within the real world. Whereas opposed to, you know, his, his action compatriots, like, 
you know, Van Dam and Dolph Lundgren, they had all tried their hand at, they did a little bit of sci-fi, you know, a couple times and everything like that. But that was always Seagal. It's always like his movies, he always seemed a little above that. You know what I mean? Like he wanted his films to be real as possible. And I'll never forget when I first saw the trailer for this film and I saw the concept of it and everything. And I'm thinking, okay, Seagal's fighting vampires, huh? Well, he really doesn't give a shit now, does he? Like, it's very <laughs> evident now that the fact that he is now dipping into this, uh, this well that he would not have done 20 years prior. Now, I, I will say, uh, a Steven Seagal film fighting vampires circa 1992, 93, when he was you know, doing his under siege thing, that could have looked pretty cool. And that, that you know, might have, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I think that, that that could have been sold and kind of would have been a pretty cool concept. But then you just watch it now, this big giant dude walking, walking hallways with a giant leather coat and a sword. You know, eh, I'm not, <laughs> that's not exciting to me. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Hey, this is Joe Biden. Listen, I know times are tough and there's a lot of fear out there. But I also know America will come back strong if we've got the right leadership. We can get kids back in school, folks back to work, back to their lives safely if we do it together. So thanks for listening. I'm Joe Biden, candidate for president, and I approve this message. I'm Joe Biden, candidate for president, and I approve this message. When it comes to criminal justice reform, history has not been on our side. I feel as though the nation has become desensitized, but black people have not. As a father, I have to turn around and talk to my 12-year-old son about police interactions. It scares the hell out of me. Joe and Kamala uniquely understand the plight of what we've been going through. Those are the things I do trust him with to lead us to that future. These are the candidates to push Congress and say, we can get there. Paid for by Biden for president. Yeah, I think the, the funny thing about Seagal, like you said, this kind of like this, he's kind of like, you know, they, they put, they kind of do like what we talked about, like, I, I, you know, with like Keone Waxman and them where it's like, they have um, people around him to kind of almost like add a level of coolness. Like he's got these like slick people in his team that all have like leather jackets as well. And there's that one guy who does a lot of the fighting. Um, he's a stunt man. I can't remember his name now off the top of my head. I had it. Um, but he's done stunt movies with like um, I think he's I think he's done stunt work for uh, The Rock, and so it's almost like part of this thing too, where it's like we're supposed to forget that Seagal is you know in his 60s and that he's kind of bigger and you know the, his his scenes he's kind of just mostly like slashing at nothing and we're sort of you know and then they add in the blood and stuff later, um, but yet then we've got some of these other people in the in the in the team that are doing more of the heavy lifting for us. Right, right. And I think, you know, um, it was really cool seeing uh, uh, Dwayne Johnson's stunt double, who I think is also his cousin, actually, seeing him pop up, you know, in, in the film. Um, that, that, yet, I mean, he gets the most, uh, that, that's what's really, if I was him, I think I'd be a little bummed. I mean, he gets some of the best action sequences in the film, yet he's not really on the cover. He's really not even in the, in the, in the short 30-second trailer for the film. It's, Again, the, the Seagal is getting all the glory. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's to throw out kind of another lame analogy at you, but I guess it's the equivalent of uh, you doing a project in, in school, right? And uh, one person comes in and slaps his name on it, even though he didn't do a damn thing. And that's the one who's getting all the cred and all the acclaim and everything like that, right? 
right? Well, it's, yeah, it's like this idea, right? That like nobody's going to take the project seriously unless you get the, the like the the I don't know who it would be, like the 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 prom king or you know like the 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 star of the football team or something. Like the teachers won't take it seriously if you don't have the star of the football team doing the project with you. So it's like you do all the work, slap the 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 the, the you know the, the captain of the football team's name on on it. And the teacher's like, oh, everybody gets an A because we love the football team or something like that. That's kind of what you're doing here with this. And it, it is one of those things where you're like, you know, like I think when, when you had Benjamin Sachs on your show and he was talking about sort of these unsung heroes that that make these movies work. And, and I think he was talking about a lot of the, the, the sort of the how, how much they have to do. Right. Where it's like. You know, Seagal's on set for eight hours doing his stuff, which I don't know if that, that sounds long for Seagal, but, you know, the people making the scenes happen are there for however many hours before and however many hours after. Um, and so, you know, even with a, a turnkey set like we were looking at here, the amount of work that goes into the lighting and getting everything the way they want it, just for Seagal to lumber in, like you said, and slash his sword a few times and then yell cut, um, it, it, it is, it's a lot. Yeah. Well, and I mean, going along with uh, what you just said about, yeah, um, having the football player come along and uh, attach his name to the project. I, I completely agree. The only difference is, is this is the uh, this is the football player who graduated five, six years ago and is still coming to the parties and everything like that and is <laughs> clearly out of shape and hasn't thrown a ball in a while. You know what I mean? <laughs> so as a result, it's kind of losing a little bit of credibility there. <laughs> right, right. And, and, you know, I think the thing for this movie that, of course, is selling us all, right, is this idea that it's Seagal and vampires. And it's something that we're expecting to be, you know, Seagal and vampires. And, and the fact that, that right it, there it, is a new concept. I mean, right. that right there, not to interrupt you, sorry, but I think that right there is something that you could theoretically sell the movie on because that is something that we have not seen before. We've seen him play government agents. We've seen him play, um, you know, retired CIA operatives. I mean, we've even seen him play doctors and authors, which is really kind of weird. But um, you, you know what I mean? But him, you know, duking that with some vampires, I think that's something that you sell it on. You know what I mean? And unfortunately, uh, you know, if, if your lead really isn't there, you know, um, and he's, you know, excuse me, if he's not there physically and he's just not there, he's not invested in it, then what do you do? You know what I mean? Right. And I mean, and I, I think that's where this movie, it runs into that issue because it, it, it is pretty paint by numbers outside of the Seagal aspect, right? Where it's just, you know, the two people that are hiding out in the, in the hospital meet up with this other small group that are trying to get away from these things so they all decide to go together but then they split up and then you know all of these scenes of like oh we're in the bathroom somebody gets dragged underneath the, the stall or whatever um you know just that's sort of that impending danger everywhere right and then they add of course these these macabre elements of like you know intestines being eaten things like that which you know you know again even that kind of stuff like the, just like the random like you know demons eating intestines who knows if that's footage from another film or you know it's just you know here we've got these rubber intestines around here. We'll just, you know, put some some corn syrup on them and have people chew at them a little bit, and and then you know, gussy up the scene, but some in, in post and make it look a little bit nicer. I think they probably use the same shots over and over again in the film of, of the the intestine eating or whatever kind of stuff like that they had. But it's like they kind of intersperse that into little bits here, 
but it's it's pretty much the movie, and we've seen this movie however many times before. And only now, like you said, it's like we, we've eaten this dish however many times before, but now we're going to try it with pineapple and see how it goes that way. Exactly, exactly. I, I was worried that that analogy really wasn't going to land and click, but I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that you appreciate it, Matt. So, <laughs> yeah. no, I'm I'm a big fan of of metaphors and analogies. My my blog, I'm just like I I use them all the time. So yeah. A good one like that, I think, it, 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 and it makes sense here, right? I mean, again, this is a movie. It's it's a movie that we, you know, I think we, you, like you said, you made a really great point that you know, Seagal fighting vampires, you could really sell that, and it would be a really great movie. Unfortunately, that's not really what we have here. What we have is your standard, you know, abandoned hospital or whatever space, people trying to to get out of there, fight off these demon people. However many scenes of them getting separated and getting attacked and all that. While Seagal and his crew in leather coats and, and swords are kind of fighting some some baddies here or there, um, it's not even like a, a real you know it's just you know it, it, like you said like you go you can go like fifteen or twenty minutes without any Seagal in the film, so you know we lose him for big periods. We don't know how many people he actually shot scenes with in the film because he does a lot of scenes where it's just him or it's just him walking with these people kind of. Down, we don't know. Like you said, we don't even know if it's the same corridor, if it's the same place each time. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they shot him walking down this hallway, and then they used that same scene, but they kind of reverse angled it or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? To uh, uh, yeah, and and that that that's really what's what's unfortunate too is you know I mean not to plug my own show, but um, I recently recorded an episode where we looked at uh, Universal Soldier Regeneration which oh, I yes. think is one of the best direct-to-video films ever made. And I think one of the things, um, one of the many things within that film that works is, okay, John Hyams, here he is, he's saddled with doing this film, but his leads, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren, are both on set for a limited amount of time. I think Dolph was only on set for about four or five days, and then Van Damme was on set for maybe 14, 15 days, if that even. Okay, so you're John Hyams trying to do his action movie, Okay, and you know it's being sold and marketed on being the next Van Damme one good thing. Okay, well, what do you do? Okay, and where a lot of these films, like uh, the you know a lot of the films that Bruce Willis is doing nowadays, for example, okay, he's on set for only a few days, and the poster and everything is selling it as being a new Bruce Willis film. But when they have him on set, what are they doing? Well, he's just talking on a phone the whole time. Or he's, you know, sitting at a desk giving orders. Or in the case of Seagal, we see him walking down a hallway. You know what I mean? And I'm sorry, but the fans don't don't want that. And what John Hyams did, which which I thought, in my opinion, was was brilliant, is he said, okay, look, I only have these guys for a short amount of time. Well, then you know, I'm going to put them to work, and I am going to save them for the third act of the film, and I'm going to really put them in the action. Okay, and I think that's what they should have done here with Seagal. I mean, if they only have him for X amount of days or whatever, instead of having him walking down hallways and, you know, (laughs) limply pull out a sword and, you know, you know, I mean, I mean, so lazy, if anything, save him for the final act. And I think I think that's kind of what I would have liked to have done if that would have been kind of cool. If we see him, he finally shows up at the end. I mean, wouldn't that have been like the ultimate deus ex machina? Okay, you have this group of survivors figuring out what they're going to do. And then suddenly Tao comes in with his guys and they wreck all sorts of habits, havoc, save the day. And you know what I mean? And they save the group and then go on to the next adventure. I almost would have rather 
had that rather than the 10, 12 minutes the Seagal's on film. What What is it? Maybe eight of those minutes, it's just him walking down hallways. Like, right. no, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a scene where they're trying to escape, which this scene where they're trying to escape made no sense to me. I, I couldn't quite figure out where, and maybe it was because I, I wasn't paying enough attention, but they're taking an elevator, and the elevator stops. And so this guy in the group who's, like, one of the, the, the people escaping, not one of Seagal's group, he, like, goes down a hatch, and he's, like, in this water area where I guess he turns the elevator back. I don't know exactly what he does, but somehow he's supposed to be under them, but yet the elevator keeps moving not through the water. It just kind of keeps moving along the elevator. None of it made sense, but the thing is, is Seagal's not doing any of this stuff. He's just standing there in the elevator, and at one point he he aims the shotgun outside to to shoot one of the vampire people in the, the water area, but he doesn't you know, like, like he, he doesn't do any of the heavy lifting anymore. He's just, you know, he's going to walk around. He's going to whip out his sword every, you know, few times, whack a few things, and, and then, you know, go back to kind of mean mugging it. And, that, and that's about it. Yeah, no, I mean, look, obviously the check cleared for Seagal right? on this film. <laughs> but I almost feel like, I mean, it, it's, it's, it, all, it, it feels as if the equivalent of, you know, look, he got his check. He made sure that it was going to cash. It did. And then he said, okay, you get me for this amount of days, and I am going to speak as little as possible. I mean, and Ben Sachs even admitted this when I spoke to him. And he'll come on set. They'll have you – know, and this is – I mean, this, this is the real unfortunate thing. As I mean, he'll come on set, okay, and they'll have everything rigged and everything like that, and they'll be like, you know, okay, Steve, we need you to, uh, you know, kick uh, six guys' asses here, and then you go over here. And then he says, no. I'm only going to do two guys and then I'm going to go back to my trailer. I'm only going to kick two of these guys asses or whatever. Well, then suddenly they have to rework the script and rewrite things and change things up. And, you know, I mean, it, it's just difficult. I mean, you, if he would just give a little bit more, um, yeah. then I think we would have a result that's, uh, that's interesting, you know, that, that, that not only was interesting, but uh, that is fun to watch. You know what I mean? And it's just unfortunate that he comes in. And on the one hand, you know, I think what I, what I go back to, what I keep going back to is on one hand, there was a time, there was a period, okay, where Seagal's movies were being made. Like if you take a look at Under Siege, I don't know what the exact budget was on that one, but films like that, there was one time where Seagal was starring in movies that were being made for between 30 to 50 million. Okay, and now suddenly he's starring in these films that are being made for five million and less. Okay, and so of course, you know, like like you know, something where there's not as many resources. Well, maybe he's not going to be putting forth as much effort, you know, what I mean, than he was when he was doing something like Under Siege. But having said that, it's kind of like, dude, there is there's still a market out there. There is still a group of fans, a solid core group of fans who like you and want to see your films. Can you at least give, maybe not 100% effort, but can you at least give 80% effort? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, I told you. I mean, I, I think, you know, I think that's his mindset is like, I'm just going to go in here. And I think like that you talked about Benjamin Sachs. I mean, I mean, he, he gives some real gems. Um, you know, I mean, he talked about the fact that he needs cue cards to do his line. 
Um, and you know, you, you notice that directors are, uh, this film's a little different. It's, it's a little unique in that, that uh, again, he's kind of like, you know, this, this sort of this, this ingredient like pineapple that gets added to everything else. Um, but you think of the, some of the other ones that he did with, with, with you know, that, that Benjamin Sachs produced that had people like Keone Waxman directing them, where it's like um, he's, he's, he's doing these parts where it's kind of all the same thing over and over again, but like there's these things that he just won't do, right? I mean, and, and then you know, in terms of like you know, he 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 always has to have the cue card, so it seems like they have to shoot him a certain way, right? So that it doesn't look like he's reading cue cards when he's talking to somebody. Uh, he doesn't do his reverse shots, so I've noticed some directors now don't bother putting the other actor in the scene, you know? So it's like almost do like a Yasujiro Ozu, right? Who would always just do the person's head. In the screen, he never did the, the shoulder, the over the shoulder reverse shot. It seems like a lot of directors are just like, you know what, that's what I'm going to do from now on with, with Seagal. It's that, you know, so that way I don't have to worry about cutting in a stunt double or something to make that work. And it's it's kind of like, you, you know, you, you watch the movie and you think like, why, you know, why are we going through all this effort just to get Seagal in a film? Is, is it really that much that worth it? And I guess from the standpoint of the studios, it's like to be able to have his name on his face on the tin. Um, you know, his face probably photoshopped onto another body, as we've seen. But to have his face of the tin, apparently it is worth it to go through all that trouble. But, you know, like you talked about with Ben Sachs, I mean, you know, the, the, if, if people are going through that much trouble to have to, you know, change the script or set set up the, the shot again or something like that, you wonder. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he's probably wondered a few times in making the movie, like, is it worth it that I'm going through all this? You know, I think in the end, in the end, that... Poorly photoshopped. I mean, and that's something else that we could that could be a, a podcast discussion in itself, or just the <laughs> hilariously poorly edited uh, uh, photoshopped covers that are on all of these uh, all of these DVDs. <laughs> but the sad truth is, is that that crappy looking uh, photoshopped DVD cover, okay, for this one, for example, um, that right there was the equivalent of you and I going to Vegas and getting our five bucks back on the roulette table and then calling it a night. You know what I mean? And that, that that's the sad truth. Even before the film is made, that right there gets the sales and gets the, uh, gets the budget back. You know what I mean? And so I think in the end, when you, with, with a lot of these guys, you know, when they at least get the check back and they at least get their, uh, their investment return made, then, in the end, there's really not a whole lot of care and time that's really put forth in this thing. You know what I mean? And that's, that's really unfortunate. I'd like to think, I guess if there's one, it's, it's really weird saying like if there's a perk to the pandemic because <laughs> that there haven't been many perks. But one thing that I, was, uh, that I was thinking about that actually was echoed on another podcast that I listened to is I think we could be seeing the return of the mid-budget film again. You know what I mean? Because the, 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 for the past few years, all we've gotten are like the really small little indies, and then we've gotten the big, huge blockbuster movies that are made for you know two to five hundred million or whatever it may be. Well, with the pandemic now, I think we may be seeing finally again the mid-budget film, the films being made for forty to fifty million. And I think if we can bring those back and we see those again, then maybe the market will change, the landscape will change, and maybe. <laughs> don't don't cross your fingers or anything, but maybe we'll get to see an invested Seagal again. Yeah, I mean, you'd like to see it. I mean, you know, you know you're talking about sort of those mid-budget films. I mean, I think even before the pandemic, 
one really bright side, um, if you can think of a bright side in a movie that was as dark as the Joker, but you know, the Joker was made for 60 million and it pulled in like a billion and a half worldwide, um, which, you know, for that return on investment, if you compare it to the Marvel movies that were, you know, like the, I think in, in, in Infinity War was made for like a half a billion and pulled in four billion. Well, you know, half a billion to make four billion, I think is whatever that, you know, versus, you know, 60 million to make, a, you know, one and a half. Well, you think about it for 120 million, you can make three billion, right? If you're, if you're making movies that successful. Uh, and so you were hoping that maybe, yeah, like you said, that, 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 that kind of that mid-budget movie comes back. I mean, I think one of the things with, the, you know, we were talking about Disney earlier. Um, you know, one of the things that Disney's tried to do is one of the reasons why they want to make a Star Wars movie every year and a Marvel movie every year and a Pixar movie every year is they want to completely overwhelm the theater system so that, you know, your, your, your AMCs and your Cinemagics or whatever, that... 60% of their screens are going to be taken up by Disney movies so that if Universal or Warner Brothers or whoever it is, you know, comes out with a DC movie like a Batman, it doesn't have a lot of screens that it can show it. So they can just overwhelm it. And so even if that Star Wars movie doesn't do as well as they wanted it to, the fact that it's taking up screens and means that, you know, the, the Justice League or whatever doesn't get the, the screens. Yeah, you know, I, and, I, you know, one of the things I think to think about with the pandemic is that companies like AMC are dying, right? Because people just aren't going out to the theaters now. And you wonder if they're going to need more content. Like if the, the system that Disney has created where they're trying to sort of squeeze out the indie theaters and they just want these big companies like AMC to just have all screens of Disney movies, you know, and maybe a, a Sony or a Universal here or there, it might be that now they're in trouble because, you know, they, they, they've created this top-heavy system that... You know, nobody expected a pandemic like this to come in and crush it. But now, I mean, look at this summer. They, they couldn't release the Marvel movie they wanted to release. Um, I don't know if they had a Star Wars movie in, in the can. I know they, they're they doing the Mandalorian on, on the streaming site. But, you know, they, they, they had to push back a lot of the films that they wanted to do this year. And you, you wonder if, you know, like if you've got a, a half a billion dollar movie that you made sitting on the shelf not doing anything, it's a lot worse than, you know, 30 or 40 million and also 30 or 40 million if it doesn't make it to the theater, it, it's not the worst thing in the world either. If it's making those monies off, you know, you know, VOD or, or, you know, being a part of a package like HBO. Yeah. I, you know, I think, and, and I think that could be a space that a, a Steven Seagal could live in. You, you'd hope that, that he could, you know, or a Van Damme or any of them, that they could live in a space where, you know, the movie's not expected to make one and a half billion worldwide. It's just, you know, if they could just make a certain amount and get people to the theater again, I would love to see it. I would love to see the movie. You know, I, I don't go to the movie theater ever, you know, even before the pandemic. I was only going when classics like, you know, the first Star Trek or Lawrence of Arabia were showing it like, you know, as a special thing at the theater. So I haven't seen anything big in, the, in a while. So it would be kind of cool. It would be kind of cool to see Seagal back on the big screen at some point. You know, I, I think you just helped me come up with what could be the next great Seagal movie in that all of the studios like Warner Brothers and Sony and uh, 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 Paramount to Lionsgate, whatever, they all get together and they hire a badass assassin, enter Steven Seagal, to go in and take out the big, huge conglomerate that is creating a monopoly on everything. Like, how cool would that be? Seagal versus Disney. Right there. That, I mean, that, that could sell itself. The question is, is are you going to get 
a Seagal who gives a damn and is willing to uh, <laughs> and is willing to maybe drop a few pounds, not wear a goofy, weird muumu or leather coat thing, um, and uh, will <laughs> will scale back on the dubbing and the stunt doubling. I think right there is kind of a cool concept, and possibly maybe you and I, when we get finished here, can uh, sit down and maybe start writing this bad boy. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and we, you know, if we're thinking about in terms of keeping the budget low, uh, we could have it all set in one big skyscraper, right? Where, you know, just... There you go. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're keeping the budget lower. That's, that's lower. Whoever's out there thinking about, you know, am I going to have to, how am I going to bankroll this thing? We've already thought of that, too. So we, we've got your, your your set that you've been using already. We're going to we're gonna have that out there. We're going to make it happen, so... Um, you know yeah. what? I'll do. I'll do you one better, Matt. I'll do you one better. Okay, this, this is even cheaper. Is it takes place in the basement of the skyscraper where everybody is hiding, because then right there <laughs> you have limited sets that are half built, right? So. Yes. Yeah, I I think you know one of the things I remember with with when you had Benjamin Sachs on. Was a, he talked about how like a, a studio or whoever would come to them with a script and say, how much can you make this movie for? And he'd give them a number and they'd say, okay, do it for this. Or do it for like $2 million less or something like that. Um, so it, if you're already thinking in terms of like how we can shave money off the budget, um, I, it, yeah, we, I think we can already <laughs> sort of help. Uh, you know, whoever's having to think of how, how we're going to do this for less money. We're already sort of helping you, um, you know, uh, shave that money off of it. There you go. Yeah. So anyway, well, I'm, I'm going to start writing this out because I think, I mean, you know, it's funny because you know that right now there are a ton of scripts being written and there are a ton of projects that are in development um, that are either about the pandemic or set during the pandemic. And I'm really, I'm really interested to see what action moves there. I, I know that uh, there's got to be one right now about a heist during the mm-hmm. pandemic. I'd like to think that there's one that's got to be in development regarding a, uh, a heist set film, like you know, during the during the the, the COVID-19 pandemic. But yeah, there's going to be some other stuff that's going out there, and obviously there's going to be zombie ones and various <laughs> mutant ones or whatever, which. It's kind of sad. is is kind of unfortunate, but um, you know. But yeah, there, there's um, there's there's a ton of stuff out there. I'm just hoping that it's uh, that it's maybe a little a little original, and that um, that's uh, there's some effort being put into it where the end goal is not just to get the money back, but to make a a solid. Uh, what is it? I want to say a solid, um, good looking flick. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one of the interesting things, you know, because I know you you've interviewed some directors who make some of these movies, uh, and and I think you know even Benjamin Sachs talking about working with, with directors for these these films, where I think in his case he would talk about how like the director would start to want to do things that they shouldn't be doing, right? That they were going to make them go over budget, and he would have to stop, you know, come in and say, no, no, we can't do this, and you know, it's about finding the director who will just do that 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 movie that way. Um, you know, I I think. It's sort of like there's sort of like the whole thing, right? Of like we have to get everybody involved. That you know, I I think it's it, it's it, um, I'm trying to think how I want to say it. Like there's a cynicism, right, about the film industry now, but especially about the direct-to-video film industry, where it's like let's kick this thing out there. And 
you know, when you watch movies like this one here, I can't think of any off the top of my head, maybe, but um, it's probably not a good thing. But, you know, when you watch a lot of these movies, um, you, you'll see these inspired moments where, like, the director or the cinematographer tries to get something in there well, or, you know, a, an actor will try to do something beyond what's expected, or they might have a supporting role, and they just want to hit that supporting role out of the park. I think, you know, that's the key, right, is if we can maybe pivot to a point where we're celebrating that part of it more and less, like, Oh, we got Seagal in this thing for 20 minutes, and okay, um, you know, you're telling me you can make this movie for five million. All right, try to make it for four, and 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 let's see what happens. And so then he's got, you know, someone like Ben Sachs has got to start cutting corners, right? It's like he knows, you know, I'm I'm sure I don't know, you know, with Against the Dark, I'm not sure, you know, um, what it was like making this film uh, for him, but um, I have to think that they, you know, he's he, he's like I'd really like to do this in the movie, but we don't have the budget for it, so we got to make it look like this and. And, and I'm sure it, it, they made it look a lot better than they could have. You know, I'm sure that they're, I'm sure that like they've got really creative to make this thing look as good as it looks. Um, and, and so it's hard because you, 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 like you said, we, we, we want to call the movie what it is, right? We want to talk about the movie for what it is. Uh, but then, yeah, it's like, who knows? This thing could have maybe been a lot worse if, if the people that were working on it that did care, <laughs> didn't care as much, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I've, I've, as, as, as poor as the film may have turned out. And again, I want to stress, it's not due to the filmmakers. It's not due to the writers or to the set designer, set designers, costuming, anything like that. Um, I think the worst thing about this film is in fact Seagal, which is so ironic considering he is the one that, uh, that, that sold the film and that was, marketed the film and on the cover but in the end i mean this was a uh, this was a fun conversation especially for uh for halloween i didn't even put that together but uh you picked the uh the perfect film for uh for the month of uh halloween and i, I really appreciate you inviting me on and let me uh let me get to chat about it with you yeah i you know because we were talking about which seagal movie to do you know that was on tubi and and i think when i I, 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 I just like the idea of, I've, I've reviewed this one before, but I thought it was a fun one to discuss, like Seagal and vampires. And so then we're doing Seagal and vampires. It's like, oh, we're doing it in October. You know, it's actually kind of fits the theme. It's kind of, you know, like for, you know, I, I don't think I, I ever intended for my blog to be ex exclusively about action. I think it's, I meant it to be about direct-to-video everything, but it just seems like action seems to be the space where a lot of fans are just very passionate about, um, I, I think, Direct-to-video action fans are ones who really enjoy the movies, um, even if they they have flaws or if they, you know if it doesn't come out right. So it seems fitting that it would be a Seagal action movie that's sort of horror-ish as well uh, that we'd be covering here for the uh, the October uh, period. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, <laughs> I would much rather discuss this one than uh, Sniper Special Ops, which I. <laughs> Uh, have not seen and I don't intend to. I, I saw a couple clips. I think I sent you a YouTube uh, thing where they were talking about it, and uh, and I'm good. So uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think the lowest I'll go is uh, is this particular film. So thank you. <laughs> yes, I mean, I mean the very the difference between this movie and Sniper Special Ops is that we were joking about how many scenes there were of Seagal walking down a corridor. There aren't even that many scenes um, of him walking in in sniper special ops he's sitting for most of the film um that actually simon of explosive action was on the last podcast he when he reviewed it for his site uh, explosive action he actually documented the, the amount of time that, that 
Seagal spent sitting versus standing up um, for his scenes. So it's like, he oh, just, nice. you know, yeah. So, so we got a, a Seagal that was a little bit more invested in this and the fact that he is standing for, for this film. He's walking in this film as opposed to just sitting uh, as he was in, in Sniper Special Ops. So maybe we should be happy for, 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 for getting a Seagal that was more invested than we, we were in talking about how uninvested he was. Well, and I mean, I, I think we should also be happy the fact that we uh, we talked we talked about it, but we haven't fully identified it. But there's a great Halloween costume right there. We just need to get a uh, a bizarre wig. I mean, because we haven't talked about that either. But that's clearly a wig that Mr. Seagal is wearing in these films. Um, yes. But a bizarre wig and a giant uh, leather coat um, that I'm assuming has to be special ordered, and then boom, you have your uh, Tao Halloween costume. Right. You also need the um, the the chia pet goatee, right? That that he has sort of like kind of just I don't know. It's like just kind of like around his mouth, right? It's kind of like just kind of like actually this film he didn't have it, did he? Did he? Um, he no, he didn't have it. He, didn't, he started. Yeah, no, he started the. It's weird. We uh, a buddy of mine. We we call it the uh, <laughs> the goatee and tiny glasses look. But if you look right. at all of his films within the past six years. He's rocking this uh, goatee and these little tinted glasses. So, um, I, again, I, I can't help but wonder if, I don't know, I don't know if he's deluded. I don't know if he is, um, if he believes his own, you know, I don't want to say they're lies, but if he believes that he is legitimately, you know, some martial arts god, or if uh, I'd like to think, you know, I'm going to give him a little bit of benefit of the doubt. I'd like to think that he is in on the joke. And he knows that um, he looks silly, and he just figures, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna run with it." It's the equivalent of, again, it's it's the kid who uh, gets tripped in the halls, falls down, and then when everybody's laughing at him, he turns around, and he just starts laughing as well. You know what I mean? Like, you can you can either you can either laugh with him or uh, not at all. And I I'd like to think that's what he's doing. Yeah, I, you know, I, it's it's hard to say with that goatee. I mean. So Seagal is, I mean, he's like literally like, I think he's like three months old. I, I was going to say he's like three months older than my dad, who's born in 52 as well. But actually, since I've been doing the blog, I started in, in 07 with the blog. Uh, initially, Seagal was born in 1951 when I started the blog. Um, he's since changed that to 1952. And who knows, maybe in a few years, it'll go down to 1953. Um, we'll see. You know, he just kind of keeps like, you know, eventually he just keeps getting younger and younger over time. Um but it, it's it's an interesting thing that like he, I, I don't know yeah like we talked about earlier he's never really pivoted on the age thing he's just you know his movies like the women just keep getting younger kind of like the Matthew McConaughey and uh, Days and Confused kind of thing, um, and and he, he like you said he's got the the, the the hair the the goatee now he 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 plays these parts that are are people that are supposed to be and that probably. I mean, maybe our age. I don't know. I mean, is that am I pushing it by saying that that it's you know it's people in their 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 you know early late late thirties, early forties? Is that who he's trying to play still with these movies? And it, it just is. We we see it. We get it. We see what's happening. Even with the amount of work that production does to make it not look that way, we we can kind of tell what's happening. Yeah. No. No. He. <laughs> I I would like to think that he would pull a. Uh a Jean-Claude Van Damme, you know, kickboxer, what was the, uh, the kickboxer reboot, Steve? Kickboxer Vengeance, Kickboxer Retaliation, where he played a mentor, you know, Stallone, he's now playing the mentors thanks to the Creed movies. Um, it would be nice if Seagal was 
seeking out something that kind of, um, you know, allowed that. I mean, I, again, I, I think, you know, I told my idea about what I think would be a great Seagal script, but you know, there's something else. I mean, how cool would it be if, you know, (laughs) go with me on this one, but you know, some kid who needs to be trained in the ways of Aikido and needs like an old mentor or something like that. I think, you know, something like that could work, but again, Seagal's ego is insisting that he, that he plays the kid who needs the, who is in training or something. <laughs> well, he can't be trained though, right? He has to always be an expert. So he can't be being trained. Actually, he's always, he's already the expert. You're right. It's right. I mean, cause yeah, yeah cause you think you, you can make a really good karate kid reboot, which I mean, we, we keep doing karate kid reboots. And now uh, with the Cobra Kai series, I don't know that there's a, a place for that, but, but maybe like a kind of a, an unofficial karate kid reboot. I mean, you could do it for direct to video where he's training someone and, and, you know, maybe he has like one scene where like the, the evil sensei at the, you know, the, 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 you know, Martin Cove character, uh, get beaten up by him. You know, he gets, he, you know, he kind of just throws that guy around a little bit and we get to have some fun there, but overall he's teaching a kid how to, how to, you know, defend himself. And, 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 you know, maybe too, like he's, tra- he's teaching the kid to defend himself, not to like go out and beat people up, but just to be able to kind of block things and, and, um, you know, it, it could be there, there. There could be a movie there for Seagal, uh, but I, I don't think he wants oh, to definitely. do it. Yeah, I, I think he, he he's he's got he's found what he wants to do, and he's going to keep keep just kind of you know he's going to keep tapping that well until it's completely dry. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> well, in the end, I, I had a ton of fun chatting with you. So again, thanks again for the uh, for the opportunity, and uh, I'm looking forward to we we spoke about it, but I'm looking forward to having you on for my. Uh, expendables episode when when i get to that that's still a ways down the line but um we'll be in contact between now and then anyway yeah i am excited to i'm really excited to, to, to do that show now now speaking of your podcast um tell uh where can people find you where can they find the podcast and and uh and, and your site yeah so the uh the, the podcast obviously is on um, all the major podcasting apps um itunes stitcher uh there's a lot of podcasting apps that i didn't even know existed but uh we're on there as well like Castbox. i didn't even know that that was one but uh yeah we're on all those itunes all those uh soundcloud as well and then um the official web page for the show um which is pretty much just a running archive of all the uh of all the episodes but it also has a you know a little contact tab and all that um is uh i must break this podcast dot wordpress.com so uh if you want to hear me expound on uh uh, more, more of these direct-to-video action films, uh, mainly just the ones uh, starring uh, the great Thespian that is Dolph Lundgren. Then uh, please check it out. Yeah, I, and and I think one of the things I I love, like I talked about, one of the things I love about your podcast is that you 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 talk movies. Like I was on to talk movies, but then you know you have people who are in the business talking on them, and I think you know just you're you're talking to Benjamin Sachs, but also talking to some of the directors. That it's enhanced our conversation that we had about this Seagal movie that. Uh, you know, it, it's it, it's kind of lackluster as a film, but we, we had a lot of material to talk about because, uh, you know, just, you know, the three, you know, some of the, the, the information that you've gleaned from your podcast, which I think is really cool. Yeah, we spent, uh, well, I think we spent the, the amount of time you and I chatted, we talked longer than the running time of the movie itself. Yeah, so <laughs> just now. Right. So we, we kind of, we kind of, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of went past that. We, we, we got more material than the movie had for material. <laughs> well, <Yeah. laughs> 
Well, thank you again, Sean, for coming on. This was a really great conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, I, I'm excited to be on yours to, to do that, that, that Expendables one. But uh, yeah, for people out there, um, I, I know I subscribe on, on iTunes, but uh, you know any major podcasting site, uh, I, you should be checking out I Must Break This Podcast because it's a really good one. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you again, everyone. Thank you, everyone listening. And I uh, will talk to you soon. I'm Joe Biden, candidate for president, and I approve this message. When it comes to criminal justice reform, history has not been on our side. I feel as though the nation has become desensitized, but black people have not. As a father, I have to turn around and talk to my 12-year-old son about police interactions. It scares the hell out of me. Joe and Kamala uniquely understand the plight of what we've been going through. Those are the things I do trust them with to lead us to that future. These are the candidates to push Congress and say, we can get there. Paid for by Biden for president. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.